0: Let me add uh, my welcome to you this morning. Uh, I'm Bob, one of the leaders of this church, and uh, it's a joy to be among you and serve you this morning. Uh, continue, please, to pray for Carol and her family, especially as we move towards the Thanksgiving for Cat, for Malcolm on Wednesday. Um, please be in much prayer for the family. We miss Malcolm deeply. Um, also, to let you know that on the eighth of December in the morning we'll be having a baptismal service, and it's a joy that um, Ellie Lincoln has trusted the, Christ, trusted the Lord. Stand up, Ellie, and this is Ellie. This one. and she's trusted the Lord, and she wants to know that she wants the world to know she loves Jesus, and she's going to get baptized, God willing, on the eighth of December in the morning. Um, so please be in prayer for Ellie and her family. But if you would like to think about baptism, if you know the Lord and love the Lord and would like to tell the world that you love the Lord, um, we'd love to have a conversation with you about that as well. Uh, Communion follows this service which will be led by one of our elders, Ian Adams, uh, and it's open to everyone in this church who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. We're turning to Romans 4, so let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning... We ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me just ask a question to you, parents of more than one child. Have you ever had the experience where one or more of your children takes umbrage with the way that you apparently treat one of the other children and they will sing out to you, that's not fair. Has that ever happened in your experience of parents of multiple children, more than one? That's not fair. Now I'm sure that as parents you will try as best you can to treat all of your children fairly, yes? Yeah, of course. But that does not mean you treat them equally, does it? Because they're not all unique. That, sorry, they are all individually unique. Therefore, they all need your love ministered to them in a particular way that's appropriate for them, which to some of the others might seem like, that's not fair. You love them more than me. Do you ever, by the way, parents, try to justify how you're treating your children to your other children? How does that go? <laughs> the reason I say that is because in Romans chapter 4 Paul in Paul's exposition of the gospel Paul is answering something that he said earlier on in chapter 3:26 which wasn't in the reading one of the reasons Paul is saying that God demonstrates his righteousness is verse 3 chapter 3:26 3, so as to be just And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We've learnt last time in chapter 3, 21 through 25, that God displayed or made known his righteousness, particularly through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, and through by the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross. He made known his righteousness that it might be received by faith. He also told us that his righteousness, God's righteousness, was demonstrated, put on public record, in presenting Christ as the sacrifice of atonement, or the propitiation, the wrath-bearing substitute, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 3.26-31. through 31. In other words... The death of Jesus on the cross vindicates God. Jesus' death on the cross justifies God. The cross demonstrates, therefore, that God treats us all fairly and equally. He has no favourites. Now, if you were a first century Jew... And you were tracking with what your fellow Jew, who you now believe has turned traitor. And listen to what he said. You would be incensed, utterly incensed, to be told that you had no hope of pleasing God through your family connections, your pedigree. That doesn't cut it with God at all. Children of Abraham, really, are you? Hmm according to the flesh, that doesn't cut the mustard with God. What horrified your circumcision, your insurance policy doesn't influence God one iota, even though he gave it as a sign, which we'll come to a bit later. Nor does your performance of obeying the law, your pedigree, your policy or your performance no ice with God at all. And if you were a devout Jew, you'd be horrified. Because they're the things that you think you must do to please God. Therefore, you would be looking for ways to shoot Paul down in flames. And you would say something like, If what you're saying is right, Paul, what about Abraham then? What about David? Romans chapter 4, 1 through 25 answers those objections by looking at when and how and why God justified Abraham and David by faith. It was credited to him as righteousness is the big theme of Romans chapter 4. It's used 11 times in this passage. It is an accounting term. For example... How would you respond if you checked your balance? Don't, by the way, do this. So, I'm just, this is an illustration. If you checked your balance on your phone now and you discovered that you had a life changing amount credited to your account as a free gift from someone who had remembered you in their will and you were the beneficiary and all your debts had been paid, and you had billions to spare, how would you feel? (laughs) That is what justification by faith means. When God credits himself to your account, and Paul wants every one of us to experience this miracle... So my aim as we prepare our hearts to come around the Lord's table this morning is to be as clear as possible. So it was credited to him as righteousness. Two questions I want us to think about as we look at this passage together. Number one, when was God's righteousness credited to Abraham? In other words, under what circumstances? What were the the conditions that God credited his righteousness to Abraham? When? When? Secondly, number two, why was God's righteousness credited to Abraham? When did he do it? Why did he do it? That's the two things that Paul wants us to grasp this morning as we look at his word. So when or under what circumstances? That's a question that Paul raises himself in verse 10. Under what circumstances was it credited? That's the question Paul asks in verse 10, and he's answering it. And there are four conditions that are prevailing at the time when God credited his righteousness to Abraham. Number one, when he was ungodly. I get that from verses 1 through 8. Paul is answering the question, "'What then shall we say, our forefather according to the flesh discovered in this matter?' If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the statement he takes from Genesis 15 16. And he expounds it in verses 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Here's the point I want to make. Verse 5. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who does what? Justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. God is in the business of justifying the ungodly. So, when Abraham was a practical atheist... When he was functioning as a pagan, superstitious, confused, old idol worshipper, with no thought of God in his frame of reference at all, God justified him. In other words, he was just like the rest of us, the rest of humanity, as Paul has been showing us, who suppress the truth we know about God that he's revealed to us in creation, and that he's revealed to us in our conscience, we suppress the truth that we know, as we deliberately make lifestyle choices that we imagine will bring us the joy and the help and the hope that we all crave and we all need. That was the condition of Abraham when God justified him, ungodly. Under those circumstances, God stepped into Abraham's life and credited his righteousness to ungodly Abraham's account, and therefore in an instant changed his past, his present, and his future forever. And Paul says, also, that's what David says. Look at verses 6 through through 8. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. This blessedness, that blessedness is a declaration of God. That he is deliberately blessing you with his righteousness. This blessedness, it's a declaration of God. And when you know you've got it, you say, blessed are those... Blessed am I whose transgressions are forgiven, don't you? God justifies the ungodly. That is great news, is it not? He was justified when he was ungodly. He was also justified when he was uncircumcised. That's the point of verses 9 through 12. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. It says the same thing in verse 12. And he then is also the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but also following the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He was uncircumcised when God justified him as ungodly, and he was uncircumcised. The point that Paul is stressing here, that if Abraham did not have to get religious in order to impress God, then nobody, no one does. He was not circumcised, then justified by God. No, no. He was justified by God, then given the sign and seal that God had past tense justified him. That's the point of 9 through 11. Let me tell you something about my story. I was brought up um, with, by loving, kind parents who were occasional church attenders. Um, my mum came from Northern Ireland. My dad came from Lancashire. and You see before you the product of what happens when an Irish lady and a, an Englishman get together. And I was christened in a Presbyterian church in Northern Ireland when I was a little baby boy. I have no recollection of the occasion at all. I have a certificate to prove it, but I, wasn't, I have no memory of it at all. I used to go occasionally to the local Anglican church where we lived in Luton. And I was sat at the back with my friends And I noticed that they were having communion, as we are having this morning, and some people were allowed to go up and take communion and drink wine. Others weren't. I wasn't allowed to drink wine. And I was a 12-year-old boy, and I wanted to drink wine. How do you get to drink wine? You have to be confirmed. I want to be confirmed. So I got confirmed, (laughs) and I had a certificate to prove it, so I could drink wine. Got wet as a baby, got a certificate when I was 12, and so I had certification under my belt that I was a Christian, right, wrong. I was still under God's wrath. It made no difference at all. Getting religious means doing stuff or having stuff done to you to win God's favour, like rubbing the Buddha's belly or counting beads on a string or fetching the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West. How many of you have seen the film Saving Private Ryan? Private Ryan's saviour in the film is a guy called Captain Miller. Towards the end of the rescue mission to save Private Ryan from death on the beaches of Normandy, Captain Miller and all of the guys who were sent out on that mission to save and rescue Private Ryan were all died. All, all, all were shot and dead. De- de- all were killed terribly. And Captain... Do you know what Captain Miller's last words to Private Ryan were, who was now safe or going to be safe and taken back? Do you know what his words were? Earned this... Earned this. You fast forward to the end of the film. And there's an old ancient warrior called Private Ryan. Standing over the grave of Captain Miller. His saviour. With tears streaming down his face and saying. Have I done enough to earn this? See, Captain Miller didn't bless him, he cursed him by making him work for his salvation, earn this. Getting circumcised, getting christened, getting religious does not earn God's favour at all. It is a sovereign gift of grace. God justifies the ungodly, and God justifies the uncircumcised. That was is great news. He also justifies the unrighteous. That's the point of verses 13 through 15. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul is building on his argument, proving the circumstances under which God justifies people when they're ungodly, when they are unreligious. Now, to the Jew, the giving and receiving of God's law through Moses was massive, which, of course, it was. That bit they got right. But they missed entirely the point of why God gave them the law. The law says, do all of this perfectly and permanently. In other words, build your own perfect righteousness by being absolutely 100% obedient to the law and live. But break even one of the least of these commands, and die. Why? Because, verse 15, the law brings wrath. The law does not bring salvation. It was never designed to do it. It was designed to show you that you're under the wrath of a sin-hating God, and you need God to rescue you from God. Enter Jesus. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, he bids us fly and gives us wings. God justifies the ungodly, God justifies the uncircumcised, God justifies the unrighteous, which is absolutely brilliant news. When he believed God. Verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And to show us the hallmarks of what true saving faith does... Paul gives us the case study of abraham 's faith, and you find that in verses 18 through 22. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as has been said to him, "So shall your offspring be." Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was fully strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Imagine this. Let me give you this scenario. Imagine that you have just been invited by your elderly friends whom you've known for years and they've invited you to a surprise celebration but you are not told what the what the surprise is going to be made known at the celebration before you arrive when you arrive at their place you this lovely couple that you know really well they've pushed the boat out to throw a no expense spared celebration and when the party's in full swing, they say, We have an announcement to make. So this elderly couple stand up and say to the gathered crowd, Next year, we're going to have a baby boy. You know this couple really well, you know they're not given to fight flights of fancy. And you also know that, in human terms, they're well past ha- in their likelihood of ever having a baby. And they've been married for years. They've had no children, and and now they announce, "We're going to have a baby next year." And the questions just flood out. Well, um, um, uh, are you going to adopt? No. Nope. How many months pregnant are you? We're not. We're not pregnant yet. Have you lost the plot? Nope. How can you be so sure? Answer, because God has promised us personally and we believe him. That's the point of the case study that Paul sets out to show us the hallmarks of true faith. There are... can you flick the slide forward for me, thank you. There are three things that Paul shows us that are the marks of saving faith. In this, number one, he faced the facts. Verse nineteen, he faced the facts that both he and Sarah were as good as dead. Humanly speaking, of them getting pregnant, no chance the point that Paul wants us to grasp is that is our natural condition before God. As we are by God, we are as good as dead. (coughs) But in verse 17, we read that God is in the business of raising the dead. He is our Father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not He faced the facts, I am not capable of making my wife pregnant. My wife is not capable of having a baby, humanly speaking. There is no hope for us ever having a baby. But God has said, my wife's going to have a baby. He faced the facts that he was as good as dead. And he gave glory to God. Verse 20. Having faced the fact that he and his wife were as good as dead, he worshipped God for what God was going to do for them in the future. He took God at his word. He believed that when God said something and promised something, he was going to do it. So he gave glory to God and threw the party and invited his friends and said, we're going to have a baby boy next year. That's what he's doing by giving glory to God. Why? Why? Because he was fully persuaded, verse 21, that God had power to do what he had promised. Making promises is really, really, really easy, isn't it? It's really easy. We are being bombarded at the moment with Politicians who are promising to solve world hunger, boil the ocean, have super fast internet in my front living room. By those who are seeking our votes in December, they can promise the world. But, keeping promises requires power. And being fully persuaded only happens... When you grasp two things, one, what is being promised, life from the dead, and when you know that the promise maker has the power to keep his promise, that's when you're fully persuaded. That's when you can look at your own life as a total train wreck and say, humanly speaking, I have no hope, but God has promised me new life in Christ. And I'm fully persuaded. That's faith. No wonder, no wonder Abraham and Sarah threw a party to celebrate God's promise to them. It says, does it not, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Because God is in the business Of bringing life from the dead. Let me tell you Christian. If you're a Christian here this morning. You can face anything. You can face anything. Because God has promised. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will bring life from the dead. From the most hopeless situation. If God has promised it. He will deliver it. However long it takes, this couple had to wait decades. But they kept on keeping on against all hope. There is hope beyond the walls of this world in the gospel of Christ. He who lives by believing in me, says Jesus, will never die. Do you believe this? Verse 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness so here's my last question how is the case study on the life and faith of Abraham relevant to us here in Flittich in the 21st century this morning there are three reasons, three ways in which it's relevant to us that Paul shows us can you flick the slide on for me please in order you've gone too far one back thank you In order that, so that, not only, but also. I'm just going to read the passages to you. This is the reasons why Paul has gone into this case study. In order that, verse 11, so then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, that's us. Why? In order that, righteousness might be credited to them. This is for you as well. This is, in order that, you enjoy the same miracle in your life that Abraham ungodly uncircumcised unreligious Abraham enjoyed and experienced and hope beyond the walls of this world flooded his soul with joy and that's what Paul wants for you and me that's what the Holy Spirit wants for you and me here this morning in order that verse 11 verse 16 so that it may be guaranteed to all therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Offspring in this term, there are two types of offspring. Let me just make a qualifying statement here. There are two types of offspring that Paul talks about regarding Abraham. There are those of the flesh that can trace their lineage back to Abraham, their DNA. There's part of Abraham's DNA in them. But there's also those who have the faith of Abraham, the DNA of his faith. And that's the one that matters. So if you've got Abraham's faith DNA, you're part of Abraham's offspring. And it's guaranteed to you through the blood of Christ. Not only, but also, verse 23, The words, it was credited to him, were, not, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And was raised to life for our justification. It was credited to him as righteousness. This amazing gift of God's righteousness. He promises he will credit to your account through faith in Jesus Christ. And this demonstrates to the whole cosmos that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As we prepare our hearts to come around the Lord's table, three questions for you to to think about in your own heart. Have I trusted Christ? Christ. Have I cast myself upon him? Has God credited his righteousness to my account? Has he begun to flood my soul with hope? Love to pray with you after we've celebrated communion. If you're not sure and would like to be sure, come and talk to me or someone you trust. There is no more important thing to know that God has credited himself to your account. Don't leave this room without knowing that, please. I'm going to pray, then we're going to sing, and then we uh, hand over to Ian, who will lead our time around the, t- the table. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Lord, we recognise That every one of us in this room are hopeless, helpless, ungodly, uncircumcised, unrighteous sinners, and Jesus was delivered over by you to death on the cross for our sins. And we praise you that He was raised to life for our justification. Please grant the gift of saving faith to everyone in this room this morning that we might know this blessedness that transformed abraham and sarah's life this blessedness that transformed david's life grant that we might know that before we leave this room this morning and we pray these things in jesus name for our joy and for your glory amen Amen. what gift of grace i yet not i